Welcome to the Siskins Business Essentials Podcast, where I sit down with lawyers from Siskins Business Division to discuss current issues, challenges, and opportunities affecting our clients. My name is Chris Seinel, and I'm a labor and employment lawyer practicing primarily in occupational health and safety, WSIB, human rights, and arbitrations. And yes, I changed the order this time so that longtime listeners won't think I'm just re-recording the exact same thing over and over and over again. Anyway, my clients are primarily in the manufacturing industries, the broader public sector, uh, and uh, and healthcare. And today, I'm fortunate enough to sit down, well, virtually anyway, with Catherine Cernuka from our business law group. So let me just get right down to it. Catherine, what do you do in the business law group? So hi, Chris. How are you? Oh, I'm um, hanging in there. Good. <laughs> good. As am I. As am I. Um, so I focus exclusively on professionals. So we have a little carve out in the profession in the business law group uh, that we're calling the professionals practice group, and we deal with clients who are essentially either governed by a college or institute, um, some sort of regulating body, and we classify them as professionals. So they might be physicians, dentists, um, uh, accountants, uh, pharmacists, anybody who's basically governed by a regular. Um, regulating body, then those are the clients that we have in the professionals practice group. So that's my focus. uh, And I'm happy to speak with you today. So let me, I mean, just if I'm a professional listener, if I'm a dog uh, or, or a lawyer, what have you, are we talking exclusively from the corporate end or, you know, if I have problems with my college, am I coming to you too? I mean, what's the sort of scope of the practice? So we, we deal a lot with the um, corporate aspect, but we're kind of the point of contact for any type of legal needs that a professional might might require. So we're offering a full service approach to the needs of professionals. So if a professional comes to me and has an issue with uh, an employee or they have some type of family law matter or uh, something outside of the scope of what I would do from a corporate perspective, then I would engage the lawyer at our firm who specializes in that particular area of law that the client is looking for. And I'll then uh, engage that lawyer to assist the client. One of the reasons I love this podcast is because I get to talk with, uh, you know, colleagues like you who have practices that, you know, I might not be intimately familiar with. So I can ask profoundly stupid questions and you can, and <laughs> you can no answer them thing. and I learn something. <laughs> oh, challenge accepted. <laughs> this will be interesting, Chris. <laughs> For example, I, I recently talked with one of our colleagues in immigration law and I said, hey, yes. what if a client did this? Just illegal just illegal. Yeah, probably shouldn't yes. do that. <laughs> so when, so my question is, you know, when I look at uh, your professional clients, whether they're doctors or lawyers or what have you, yes, are the types of needs that they have from a corporate law perspective pretty similar? Or, you know, if a lawyer comes to you and says, hi, I want to set up my own law firm, or I want to set up an individual, you know, professional uh, versus a doctor that says, I want to set up a practice with a bunch of other dogs. Are they totally different animals? If, if a dentist or a doctor or, or somebody wants to set up a practice, then the principles of uh, corporate law are essentially the same. We rely on the same principles and the same uh, legal ideas. But the issues that might be facing, that they might be facing, may be a little bit different. There are also things in terms of, because they're, they're governed by a regulatory body, we have to make sure that they're in compliance with their college or their institutes. So we have to make sure that uh, they're abiding by those those rules that are set in terms of their practice. And when we set them up, then they might be entering different different types of arrangements. So it might be a partnership arrangement. They might be purchasing a practice. 
Uh, they might be taking a practice from somebody else. So there's just different considerations. And as well, we're um, also making sure that from a doctor's perspective, they're in line with different acts and um, statutes that are applicable to them in terms of like the privacy of patient care and other implications like that that they have to keep in mind. Um, but generally, the corporate law principles are the same. We're just working in a little bit of a different, different realm. Would you say that, that most of your clients come from the medical field, or is that kind of a pretty even split between different professions, or how does it break down? We do have a number of physicians, um, and we have a number of dentists as well. So that, that's kind of the bulk of our practice, but we do also um, have clients who are uh, optometrists um, or pharmacists. A whole, a whole broad range. We've got uh, physiotherapists as well, um, some nurses. So a lot of, a lot of different professions that we service. When a professional comes to you and says, "Hi, you know, I want to set up a corp," is this something that they, they largely already know what they're doing and they know why they're doing it, or, you know, are they coming you to you really to explore what the potential options are? You know, I, I ask because the one thing that we most certainly did not learn in law school is how to run a legal practice. You know, we right. run all about running cases and how to, you know, work with clients and all sorts of stuff, but running your own, you know, legal practice, what? And, <laughs> and so I don't know if other professions are the same. Um, yeah. So a lot of times they'll come to us because they have spoken with their accountant and, and oftentimes the accountant will tell them the tax benefits of practicing through a corporation. Sometimes they haven't spoken to an accountant yet. They'll just come to us and say, hey, I want to set up a professional corporation because a lot of my friends are doing it. And I've heard that this is maybe the way that I should be practicing uh, because there are tax benefits and tax advantages to practicing through a professional corporation. So if they need advice on some of those benefits, then you know we'll certainly talk to them about that and sit down with them and explain to them why you may choose to practice through a professional corporation or whether or not it's the right time to do so, whether or not they're even able to set that up depending on the arrangement of their um, whether they're an employee or whether they've got their own clinic so it kind of depends it's a case-by-case basis but you know we'll sit down with them and we'll talk to them about all of their options and why some options may be more favorable to them than others based on their circumstances other than being an employee are there any particular reasons why somebody wouldn't want to bring themselves into a corp uh Sometimes if you're right at the start of your career and you've got a lot of debt or, or a lot of expenses that um, you have to be, you know, you have to pay and you have to maintain, then um, you may not want to set up a professional corporation right away. It may not make sense to you. Um, the main benefit of setting up a professional corporation is our, our tax benefits. So if you um, retain earnings in that professional corporation, then those are taxed at a lower tax rate. But if you don't have, you know, if you've got a lot of debt that you have to pay and the money that you're making is going to pay your expenses and you don't really have enough uh, money to put into your professional corporation to take advantage of those tax benefits, then it may not be the right time for you to do that. So uh, it just kind of depends on, on where they are in their stage of, the, of their career. Sometimes it does make sense right at the beginning to set up a professional corporation and other times it doesn't. So uh, we just sit with the client and talk to them about their circumstances and, and figure out what the best approach is for them. So, so from your perspective, when it comes to maintaining these corps, um, regardless of whether it's a doc or, or, or a dentist or uh, an optometrist, what have you, what's primarily involved? What, what's involved in sort of setting up the corp and then what's involved in the ongoing maintenance of it? If, if I'm coming to you and, and you're going to help me. Sure. 
to set up a corporation, um, we would set it up as a, a, a regular corporation, Ontario Corporation under the Ontario Business Corporations Act. Um, but the regulating body that's overseeing each profession um, has requirements that the professional also has to abide by. So you need to have a certificate of authorization from your regulating body in order to practice through that corporation that you're setting up because you can't practice medicine through um, just a regular Ontario business corporation. You need that certificate of authorization in order to be able to do that. And then there are also restrictions in terms of those who can be shareholders, um, those who can be directors and officers of the corporation, and just the way that um, the types of shares that those those shareholders can hold. Uh, so there are a lot of considerations in that perspective. Um, and then in terms of maintenance of a professional corporation, uh, the college requires the certificate of a renewal to be, or the certificate of authorization, sorry, to be renewed every year. Uh, so we will sit down with the professional and we'll uh, complete that application process for them if they would like us to do that. Um, and all it really is, well, pre-COVID, <laughs> we would basically just have them come into the office once the application was completed and they would just sit down and sign and then we'd send it off to the college. Uh, but now we are doing a contactless approach. So we're couriering it out to the, the client and having them sign it and then they'll courier it into the college. But it has to be maintained that way. And then in terms of tax filings, and you have to make sure that you file certain um, certain requirements in terms of taxes with your, uh, with your corporation as well to maintain it. So you're actually sending the documents out, the actual hard copies. Is, is there a reason, are you unable to get people to either DocuSign or kind of, you know, scan it or, or what have you? Well, the college requires original signatures still. They haven't, they haven't adapted to um, the, the COVID situation in terms of allowing um, electronic signatures for these applications. So that's why we are couriering them out because they still require original signatures from the physician or dentist, whoever it may be. I'd like to take a moment and acknowledge that you were able to say the word couriering, <laughs> whereas I just butchered every time. I just listened to how you said it wrong. Yeah, yeah. And did the exact opposite. The, uh, so is that particular change that you've had to make to your practice, are there any others or is that really, you know, have you seen an impact that comes from COVID-19 and the, and the changes that have happened in all the different sectors? So our clients have been impacted significantly in the sense that the chief medical officer of health has ordered that non-essential and elective services provided by regulated health professionals be suspended and reduced to minimum levels, with some exceptions, um, those exceptions being uh, time-sensitive cases in order to avoid negative outcomes for patients or potential risk to public safety. Um, but for the most part, procedures of an elective nature are suspended. So the CPSO um, and the RCDSO, the regulating bodies of the physicians and um, as well as dentists, have uh, strongly suggested that um, both physicians and dentists and other healthcare professionals abide by the order and um, continue to ensure that non-essential and non-urgent procedures and treatment are suspended. So that's a huge impact on our clients because um, that results in some, some healthcare providers have chosen to completely shut down their clinics 
Uh, some dentists have completely shut down their clinics while others are still open, but only providing urgent or emergency care um, and ensuring, ensuring that certain safety measures are in place in order to allow them to safely be able to administer that care to the patients. Um, but of course, as you can imagine, a lot of, a lot of our clients are impacted financially by that, by that order. And they don't have business running as usual. They don't have revenue coming in in the same capacity that they did before. Uh, so they're having to try to navigate how to continue to maintain the operating expenses of their practice while COVID is, you know, still still an issue because they aren't able to bring in the revenue that they did before. So it has been a big challenge for our clients, and we're seeing that all the time. Are you are you seeing any sort of consistent strategic approaches to what they're doing? Uh, not necessarily. Well, the the most consistent approach is that they're all just kind of you know doing urgent care and emergency procedures but like there are the doctors well, i'm just using doctors as an example because that's an easy one but, sure um uh emergency doctors clearly are impacted in, di- in a different way than let's say family doctors or other specialists because emergency doctors are the frontline workers and a lot of them are working very closely with covid patients so they're um you know having to implement their own personal uh measures to keep them and their families safe uh, but for the most part, those who are, who are in clinics are, a lot of them are providing telemedicine um, or they're providing other forms of virtual care and implementing different methods of delivering care to their patients while still maintaining that communication and still being available for the patients if they need them to be. I know, uh, I know a few practitioners are doing remote diagnostics yes. and and you know, like mm-hmm. physiotherapy, you know, remote physiotherapy, which I didn't even know was the thing you could do, but I've done it and it's great. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> is, is, you know, I have to imagine there are restrictions on setting that up, what with the concerns sure. about, you know, confidential information, patient privacy, that sort of thing. Yes. So are, yeah. you know, I, I can't imagine that's just being done through a Zoom call. Are there specific providers that they're using and, and do they get that information from you? Do they get that from their college? Who's doing that? Um, well, the college has set out some uh, pretty comprehensive guidelines on providing virtual care. They've always been able to administer care through uh, telemedicine, but we're just seeing such an increase in that now that the college has put out some more regulation or more guidelines on how to properly do that and to ensure that they're doing it in uh, the most appropriate way. So virtual care can be used whenever possible, whenever appro- appropriate, based on uh, the patient that they're providing care to, but they have to make sure that they obtain consent from their patients, uh, re- whether it's obtained prior to delivering the service through virtual care or immediately after the visit is initiated on a platform. Um, there are different types of platforms that they use. Some of them uh, has have specific programs that they use. Other times it's, it's just virtual over your computer or, or um, you know, over a video call or something. But you just have to make sure that they're doing it in a way that upholds their obligations, both professionally and legally, and they're still able to maintain the same standard of care as they would if they were seeing them in person, as well as making sure that they put safety measures in place in order to avoid any type of breach of privacy concerns, you know, and just make sure that they're complying with the Personal Health Information Protection Act. So, you know, there's a lot of considerations when you're providing virtual care to patients. And given that it's ramping up significantly in light of this COVID-19 pandemic, then uh, a lot of physicians will either 
call the college and, and figure out what the best approach is or reference those guidelines that they've posted on their site. Are you hearing anything from your clients about, you know, just turning their minds towards, you know, once things begin to either loosen up or return to some semblance of normality in the next, let's say, six months, nine months, a year, who knows? Uh, is there an expectation that this will just sort of snap back like an elastic band the way it used to be? Or are you hearing anything from your clients about almost, you know, seeing business advantages to running a virtual practice? Well, I think whether they want to run a virtual practice or not, I think that that might continue um, into the future. Because even if, even if orders and um, rules are kind of laxed a little bit and things start to get back to some, some semblance of normalcy, then I still think the general public will have a hard time shaking that fear and that concern about risking potential exposure. So they might not want to come to dental offices or doctor's offices if they don't really have to, or they might kind of censor themselves or screen themselves and see whether or not it's truly something that they require immediate care about, or they might just, you know, call the doctor and see if they can just do it virtually and see if the doctor will continue to do uh, patient care virtually. And I think that might kind of be the way that things are leaning, at least in the near future, uh, just because I think the public's perception of what is safe and what is not safe might kind of lean to a more of a conservative approach um, than maybe the doctor or dentist or other healthcare professional would want in order to get their practice back up and running. But I think they might have to make some some adjustments in that perspective. So, so for a lot of my clients, where there's been either you know a pivot to a new business model while all of this is going on, or yeah. there's been there's been a reduction. We've had some that have had to do layoffs, and so you know folks are off work. Uh, a lot mm -hmm. that even if they did layoffs, have actually taken advantage of the. Um, Canada emergency wage subsidy to just put those yes. people back on payroll. Um, yes. And, uh, and of course, you know, for some, if they either lose their jobs or, or have to be on leave for COVID related reasons, they might be able to use mm -hmm. the CERB and, and get that $2,000 a month. With, are, sure. I, I have to imagine your clients are, are able to use those where they're eligible for yes. wage subsidy. So I'd be curious yeah. to know if a lot of your clients, you know, have been eligible for the wage subsidy and are choosing to use it and what other government options are out there that they're availing themselves of. Uh, so a number of them are, um, are, are taking advantage of the Canada emergency wage subsidy and they are eligible uh, to do that, um, beca you know, because they're a Canadian operating uh, business, they're able to do that and, and they can generally cover 70, I think it's 75% of the employee's wages for a certain period of time. I think it's now been extended to June 6th. Um, so they have to have at least a drop of, of a, certain, a certain percentage in their revenue, which if their practices are closed, then you know that's, that's very easy for them to meet that threshold. Uh, so a lot of them are able to access that. Uh, and some of, one of the other things that, um, that clinic owners are able to access to are uh, is the Canada Emergency Business Account. So small businesses are offered this business loan program in order to make sure that they have um, access to funds in order to cover or help cover their operating costs during this pandemic. 
So this loan is available to those small businesses who qualify um, in the amount up to $40,000. And then up to $10,000 or 25% of that amount is potentially eligible for complete forgiveness um, if it's fully repaid by uh, December 31st, 2022. So in order to be eligible for that, uh, they have to demonstrate that they have paid between 20,000 and 1.5 million in total payroll in 2019. Um, and they have to be a Canadian operating business in operation uh, at the beginning of March. Um, and that they have the intention to continue to operate or resume operations. Uh, so they are able to, to access that. There are a few restrictions on those. They can't um, use the funds for prepayment or refinancing of any existing indebtedness um, or help fund increases in management compensation. Um, basically, it's used only to pay non-deferrable operating expenses of the borrower, uh, including payroll, rent, utilities, insurance, um, regular scheduled debt service. So if, as long as they're able to use that amount for those types of expenses, then they can access this, uh, this business loan that's available to them. And the, are the restrictions on how the loan is used, is mm-hmm. that put out by the feds or is that put out by the yeah. lender? It's put, out, it's put out by the feds. And the lender, I'm, I'm assuming, will have some... some uh, some rules in place that they have to abide by, uh, yeah. but those restrictions primarily are put out by the government. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, that's about all I have. I want to thank Catherine for taking the time to talk today. If you have any questions that has come out of our discussion, please uh, visit the Siskins website at www.siskins.com or send a note over to our uh, one of our social media accounts, and that's at Siskins underscore LLP. So once again, this has been Catherine Stranuka uh, and I talking about the business essentials related to corporate law and its relationship with COVID-19.